Well, as has already been said, we're still looking at the bigger picture. We're going through Paul's letter to the Ephesians and we're halfway through chapter 2. Today, the second half of chapter 2 and uh, we've entitled it One in Christ. A man was feeling increasingly tired and uh, quite unwell for quite some time. But it was not until he was beginning to get some strong chest pains that he decided to go to the doctor. The doctor quite quickly referred him to a specialist and after a thorough examination, the specialist said, your condition is very serious, you need an operation very quickly. And quite amazingly, he got that quite quickly. He was into hospital, had the operation. And within a few days, he was feeling so much better. And then after a few weeks, he was on his feet and he couldn't believe that he was so, so much better and beginning to enjoy life again. Well, as happens, he had to have an, uh, an, an appointment with the, the specialist who happened to be the surgeon and uh, the, the, the specialist was uh, very happy to see him, looking quite well, and he sat, sat him down and he begin, began to tell him what had made him well. He said, you may not know, but you've had a heart transplant. And he said, while we're at it, we've cleaned out all your arteries, it's all been done very carefully now. Uh, The operation took nearly eight hours working on you, a team of people working on you. And he said, you were very fortunate that there was a donor heart available, otherwise I don't think you would have survived. Well, prior to the appointment, the man was just happy that he was well. He was enjoying life again in a way he thought he, couldn't do, he wouldn't do it again. And he was quite happy with that. Now, having given, been given some special information, some specialist information, he was in awe of all that had been done for him. And uh, just the fact that he was now alive and how precious life was to him. And he was absolutely determined that from now on, He was going to live this life that he'd been given to the full. He was going to make the most of this life that had been given back to him. Well, I think Apostle Paul is a bit like that surgeon. That uh, he's talking to people who know they've been spiritually healed and been given a new life. But they need to see the bigger picture of all that God did in this amazing heart surgery. In a sense, we've all had heart surgery, haven't we? Those who believe in Jesus. And, um, uh, you know, we need to see that bigger picture. And this heart surgery, we call it salvation, don't we? And we need to see that bigger picture and all that Paul has to say about it. We may know that we've been saved, that God is our heavenly Father, but God wants us to see the bigger picture, making our hope for the future more secure. That's part of what it's about. God is revealing things to us through the Apostle that will make our future secure and it will cause us to praise and worship God all the more for his amazing grace to us, expressed uh, in his kindness and mercy to us. Well, this is theology. What we're looking at now is theology. And some people say, don't give me theology. I know Jesus loves me. That's all I need to know. I don't need to know the theology. But... The word theology just means knowledge of God. And it's so important that we know about God. We shouldn't despise it or shun it. 
It's a foundation for Christian living. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that uh, when the Apostle is writing to various churches, sometimes in response to questions that they've put to him, he's writing to them, correcting some practice or whatever, he invariably starts with theology. He tells them who they are in Christ. He reminds them of what God's done for them in Christ. He reminds them that they're God's saints, set apart for God's purposes, that God's grace is continually with them. And having told them that, he says, in view of this, because of this, now live to please God. Now live differently because of all the things that God has done. So good Christian lifestyle and practice proceed from good theology. So we shouldn't ever shun it. So far in Ephesians, we've seen that before we believed in Jesus, our standing in God was far worse than we could have imagined. Paul tells us that we were alienated from God. We were objects of wrath, um, God's righteous wrath uh, against sin, that we were spiritually dead because of our sins. And to make matters worse, we couldn't do anything about it. Nothing could we do uh, to change the situation. But we've also seen that because of God's great love for us, he made us alive even when we were dead in our sins. He went through our graveyard and said, come alive, come alive. And we did, we came alive in Jesus Christ. Through his death and resurrection, God dealt with our sin and reconciled us to himself. Absolutely amazing. But this gracious act of reconciliation is bigger than we first thought. More went on during that time than we first thought. And that's what Paul is doing in giving us the bigger picture. Let's have a look where we've got to so far. We are blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That God has stored up for us such wonders and such blessing that we are co-heirs with Christ. We are heirs of God. That we're going to spend eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ as the bride of Christ. Uh, and we're going to share eternity with him. We were chosen before the foundation of the world. God had you in mind when he created the world. I don't understand that, but God is sovereign, and God is infinite, and he can do that. He had us in mind before he created the world. We're adopted as his sons and daughters. We're legitimately now part of God's family. God adopted us. If you like, there's a legal transaction in heaven that cannot be changed because God adopted us. He redeemed us from our futile way of life through Jesus' sacrifice. We've been saved from our sins. We've been saved from the consequences of our sins. We were captive to sin and God has redeemed us through Jesus. We've been given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance, like a down payment of the good things that are to come. And uh, really, the Holy Spirit is a taste of the age to come. We have a promise of an age to come, but that age is breaking in. And we experience that through the Holy Spirit. God has given us the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And we are God's workmanship. And I think, as Steve said, we're God's work of art. We're God's work of art created in Christ Jesus to do good work and good works. And all this is to the praise of God's glorious grace. So that's kind of where we've got to. Now in this great 
acts of salvation, the first thing that God had to do was to deal with our sin and deal with the separation that there was between us and God. A holy God, sinful man. How can you bring them together? God did that in Jesus and he broke down all the barriers between us and himself. But there's more that God accomplished in saving us and placing us into Christ. We were not only reconciled to God, but we have the possibility of being reconciled to others uh, from whom we may be alienated and separated. That's a wonder of what God has done. So we have a vertical reconciliation, we're reconciled to God, but there's a possibility also of a horizontal reconciliation, all part of the same package that God gives us in our salvation in Christ. We'll see that Paul deals with the separation and alienation that there was between Jews and Gentiles. Now don't be put off by that and saying, well, that's an old conflict, I don't think we need to worry about that in these days. Well, for two reasons we do. First, we're Gentiles, most of us, unless there are any Jews here, and there might be, of course. But we're Gentiles, and everything that Paul says to the Ephesians applies to us. Uh, what, what is said about the Gentiles and their state before they came to Christ really applies to us. And also, the truth that Paul reveals can apply to any individual separated uh, from others by things like uh, religion, race, creed, tribalism, social class, education, because all those who have been reconciled to God have been put into one body and made one people. There's a unity of the people of God. And God does it by removing those things that divide us, the things that separate people, making them into a new race of people in Christ. When we look around the world, there are some terrible, terrible conflicts going on, aren't there? religious and sectarian conflicts where communities are just so much at odds with one another and people with the best will in the world, different people go in and try and bring reconciliation to these people and I really admire them. They, they're so patient and they're so determined to do it but sometimes you think, will these people ever get together? Will they ever be reconciled to one another? Well, we know there is one answer and that's in Jesus Christ. There is a possibility for the impossible to be made possible in Jesus. So we're going to look at chapter 2 and verses 11 to 22. And Paul starts, as I said, with this section by describing alienation uh, between peoples that was widely known and experienced in the Middle East uh, at that time. He's talking about uh, the separation and alienation and hostility between Jews and Gentiles, and we know Gentiles, of course, are anybody who's not a Jew. Um, when in a moment we look at the brief history of how this separation came into being, we might conclude that God was responsible for it because we find that God has chosen a special people for himself and he's called them his chosen people and he's poured his love into them and given them promises and, and great privileges that he didn't give to the other nations. But we'll see that. Anyway, let's, let's read the passage from verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, 
In Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made, has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Let's start then with a little brief history of God's chosen people. And we're going to look at the first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis. And... uh, You might just about see in the top left-hand corner there, we've got the flood and we've got nations and Babel. After the flood, when God destroyed uh, all living things because of the wickedness, the extreme wickedness of man, except Noah and his family, humanity begins again with eight people. Just eight people survived the flood. Noah, his wife, his three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth, and their wives. And, uh, but their descendants uh, had no relationship with God. And they began to develop pagan worship, which is kind of typified by the Tower of Babel. And God needed to put a halt to this. And he confused their language and scattered them throughout the earth. And you can read about the different descendants uh, of the sons of Noah there in Genesis So we have a world that is largely pagan. They have no knowledge of God, they don't know God. And God breaks into this and he speaks to a man who's a pagan, Abraham, although called Abraham at first. He's an old man. Uh, He and his wife are well past childbearing. But when you look at the amazing promises, God is about to perform a miracle in this man's life. And um, he's the descendant of Shem. And God makes this promise to him in Genesis 12. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Notice that in addition to God blessing Abraham and his descendants, the aim was that this new nation that was forming would bless the whole earth. That was God's intention, to bless the whole earth uh, through Abraham and his descendants. God chose a people for himself that he might dwell among them, that he might teach them his ways, that they might be a holy people to him, uh, that they may be separated from the evil ways uh, of the pagan nations around them. And we get a a glimpse from time to time in the Old Testament as to how evil they were. Uh, They had forms of religion that sacrificed their children and some really terrible things. And God's aim 
was to keep them separate and to make them a people for himself, but then to ultimately show the world what it was like for a people to be in fellowship with God under God's government and God's uh, authority in the earth and, and, uh, and to demonstrate what that was like and for God to be a channel of his revelation and blessing uh, to the world through them. They were to be a light to the Gentiles. That's what it said in the scriptures. You are to be a light to the Gentiles. God gave them immense privileges. They were to be a kind of prototype of what God wanted in the earth. God would start with this family and then that will be replicated uh, throughout the whole earth. And this is how Paul describes his people, the Jews, in his letter to the Romans. He says, theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ. They had everything, including the promise uh, of a coming king, uh, the saviour. Sadly, Israel kept their difference nationally and ritualistically uh, from the other nations, uh, but morally uh, they became like lost like the lost nations around them. And um, there are times in the Old Testament where you can read that the prophets say, you are worse than the nations around you. Your sin is worse than these godless nations. And so God had so many harsh things to say about them. And they lost their sense of mission to the world. They had no interest in sharing God uh, with the world and they became more and more separate, boasting about their religious significance and their religious heritage as children of Abraham. Israel's main problem was instead of being a light to the Gentiles, they became like them and their light burned very dimly. And you can say there's a warning to the church in this as well. And, and it's, a, it, it's a difficult line to walk sometimes. We are particularly concerned to be involved in our community and we want to welcome the community into our church, and we want to be involved in the community and serve the community and identify with our culture. But we must never compromise our moral values. Uh, we, we must maintain the distinctiveness. That's not that we judge the people that we are involved with, but we maintain our own lifestyle with the high moral standards that God requires. And somebody's penned this. They've said, when the church is least like the world, and that's morally, it does most for the world. We can't be a light to people if we're like them, unless we can show them something of God's holiness and purity. Paul opens this section with a description of the nations outside of Israel, which include the Ephesians. He says this, Therefore remember that formerly... You who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Abraham, when he was 99 years old, God appeared to him again and renewed the covenant to him and he gave him a sign of the covenant which was male circumcision for boys over eight days old. And it was to be a sign of faith, a sign that the people had faith and that they were obedient to the covenant. It was to be an outward sign of something that was happening inside them, in their hearts. 
but it became just a worthless outward sign uh, because they were completely godless in their ways. And the Jews boasted about this outward sign, about this circumcision. And in their language, they would use it as a mark of separation. So as Paul says, they would call themselves, we are the circumcision and you are uncircumcised pagans or Gentiles. And they made that as an outward distinctive um, between them and the nations around them. But one word that best describes the Gentiles is the word without. You'll see they were without so much. We were without Christ. Christ is the Greek translation of the word Messiah, which is Hebrew word. And it meant the coming anointed one. And the, the Gentiles had no expectation, no hope of a coming king as the Jews did. So they were without hope. They were without citizenship. They were foreigners, aliens and strangers to the nation of Israel. Now whilst it's true that uh, non-Jews could convert to the Jewish faith, it was only in limited terms. Um, And I'll make mention of that in a moment. They are called proselytes and they could only come in under certain terms. They were never fully part of the nation. And worst of all, no, first of all, they were without the covenants, um, the many promises and blessings from God. And then worst of all, they were without God. This does not mean that they refused to believe God or that God had forsaken them or they were particularly godless in their conduct. But what it means is they had no knowledge of God. The, The Gentiles had no real knowledge of God. And it's something that we've said from time to time before. But we only know about God what he has chosen to reveal of himself. Now it is true that we can look around in nature and whatever and we can see the mighty works of God, God's creative power, looking up into the sky and so on. But we don't know anything about God morally. We don't know anything about God's thoughts or his intentions for mankind. We only know those things if God reveals them to us. And God had not revealed it to the Gentiles, only to the Jews. So they were, in that sense, they were without God. But then we get Ephesians 2 verse 13 and we get this big but that Steve mentioned. Not but God this time, but but now. God intervenes. God intervenes to change the situation. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. The promises to Abraham are fulfilled in Christ. And if you're a Christian, if you are in Christ then the promises to Abraham are fulfilled in your life. Those promises are for you. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians and he says, all the promises of God are yes in Jesus. We inherit the promises, the promises given uh, to Abraham. Initially, God put a difference between the Jews and the Gentiles in order for his purposes to be fulfilled. But once those purposes have been fulfilled, once the Jews have brought forth the Christ, brought forth Jesus, then that difference uh, was to be broken down. There should be no difference. And although it was particularly significant for the Gentile Ephesian Christians to know that they'd been brought near to God through the blood of Christ, through the sacrifice of Jesus, Paul in his letter to the Romans says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that included the Jews as well. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So the Jews too need to be more near to God as never before 
and in consequence they will be brought near to others, Jews to Gentiles. This reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles is not by compromise. There was to be no compromise. When you look at the conflicts around the world, and just to take an example, we could take Israel and Palestine or the Palestinians, uh, we could say, um, how on earth can there be reconciliation between these people? They're, they both have requirements that are in conflict with one another, but uh, many people have tried to broker peace. Often it's the Americans who come and they want to try and bring these sides together. Now everybody knows, even if they don't express it, that if there is to be peace, there's got to be compromise somewhere. Somebody's got to give some ground somewhere, either both of them or, or just one side. There is no way that their needs can be met without compromise. But God reconciles Jews and Gentiles without compromise because they become a new people, they become a new nation, one people. Paul says in um, Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. There was an order. Salvation was to come to the Jews first. The gospel was first announced by Jews to Jews. Jesus was a Jew uh, and his gospel, first of all, was to the Jews. He said, I've come, first of all, to the lost sheep of Israel. But later he said, there are others who are outside this fold that must be brought in. And of course, just before he returned to heaven, he gave his disciples uh, the instruction to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. So there was to be an expansion, but it was first of all uh, to the Jews. Paul, in his missionary journeys, um, when he was travelling around, um, going from place to place, from city to city, taking the gospel, he would invariably go to the Jewish synagogue first of all. He would see if his fellow Jews would receive the gospel first of all. But then although um, he did that, even though he was, um, had a, a particular commission to be an apostle to the Gentiles, nevertheless he went to the Jews first of all. And if they received it, that was good. If they didn't receive his gospel, then he went, would go to the Gentiles. And, uh, and, we, uh, and we find that, that so it was to the Jews first of all and to see whether they would receive the message. Then in Ephesians 2 verse 14... It says, for he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. I said that even though it was possible for non-Jews to convert to the Jewish faith, there was still a wall of hostility, both physical and spiritual. The Jews had a special place in the temple called the Court of the Gentiles. And it was divided from the temple proper by a stone wall. They were not allowed to cross that. They were not allowed to cross that boundary. And also spiritually, even though there were these proselytes who were Gentiles, Jews would not go into their home. They would keep themselves separate. So there was still a middle wall, that, 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 a wall that had to be broken down. It had to be broken down uh, this hostility had to be replaced by fellowship. You can only have fellowship with people with whom you have something in common, something special in common with them. And that's what God accomplished. And also, the law with its commandments had to be abolished. And we're talking 
about the ceremonial law. You know, the Jews had various ceremonial laws that governed their diet, it governed their worship, it governed all sorts of uh, hygiene and so on. These had to be abolished because these were not going to be applied to the Gentiles. But also the condemnation of the moral law also had to be abolished. And this was done through the death of Christ. So now righteousness is, is, is attained not by trying to keep the law but by faith in Jesus Christ. Now there's nothing wrong with the law of God. The Bible says that the law is holy righteous and good but the effect of the law was to show people how far short they had fallen uh, how far short they were of the glory of God it only demonstrated how sinful sin was because people could not keep the law and um, we find that Jesus fulfilled the demands of the law by living a perfectly righteous life he fulfilled the requirements of the law. And, and yet, he also died for the condemnation of the law. Jesus was condemned for sin he did not commit. He was condemned for our sin. And Jesus took the condemnation and the punishment. It says, in his flesh, uh, he abolished it. He took the punishment for our sins uh, in his own flesh. And to say now there is no condemnation. We are not condemned now because Jesus took the condemnation upon himself and uh, that the law was the way in which God once chose to relate to his people but now Jesus has come the law is obsolete the way that we relate to God the new way we relate to God is now through Jesus Christ and it's open to all who believe now we might say well what about the Ten Commandments do they still apply to us well, God's law has not changed. God's requirements haven't changed. But Paul tells us that God has now written his law on our hearts. God's law is written on our hearts. It was once external to us. It's now written on our hearts to the point that we now obey the law because we love God, not because we fear condemnation and punishment. So God's standards haven't changed but the way we relate to God in accordance with those standards. And as I said, there's now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. There's still a tendency, even if people understand that they're one people in God, there's still a people to see their ethnic origin or their national identity or their social grouping as their primary identity. Uh, so, uh, you know, as, and that being a Christian as being secondary. So in a community where there are Christians, and may there, there would be more than one tribe, if you like, a different ethnic origin, when conflicts arise, it's not unusual for people to express their first allegiance to their tribe or to their social grouping or whatever it is. And um, now this is particularly prevalent in tribal lands such as Africa. And there is such a need, a great need for Christians to see themselves from God's perspective. And uh, this is what Paul describes here in verse 15, second half of verse 15. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. 
Do you remember those terrible times in Rwanda? I forget what the year was, it's a lot longer ago than we probably think. And we were aware that people who had lived together in communities for years in harmony, because hatred and fear were sown into those communities, they began to attack one another most brutally uh, because what was happening was they were showing allegiance to their tribe. There was more than one tribe in the community and somehow or other it all became very tribal. And even more sad that many of them were Christians. It was Christians fighting Christians on the basis that their identity was their tribe and they'd been stirred up. And I remember afterwards some of them were interviewed and said, I don't know why I did it. I really don't know why I did it. But I remember towards the end of the conflict, there was a newspaper photograph and it was these women and they had placards and they said, not Hutu, not Tutsi, but Jesus. They could see the only reconciliation for their community was to recognise their oneness in Jesus. John Peepy, who oversees the New Frontiers churches in Ghana, uh, he's written a book to try and address this issue. Um, Tribalism is rife in Ghana and it, it, it interrupts and spoils the church and he's written a book uh, and it's entitled God's New Tribe. Uh, and that's what it's all about. God has created a new tribe. I should not see myself primarily as an Englishman who happens to be a Christian. I'm a Christian who happens to be an Englishman. And it's always got to be that way, that we've got to be very careful about where our allegiance is. Verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Notice that the whole Trinity is involved here. He, that is Jesus, preached to the Gentiles who were far away. They had nothing in God at all. But he also preached peace to those who had all the promises, the Jews, and they were near. But both were alienated from God by sin. Both needed to respond to the gospel. They both needed to come to Christ. There was no difference. The only way to approach God the Father is through Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And that word access is a great word. We have access to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We have access to the creator of the world. Amazingly. We don't have to come through anybody else, no other intermediaries, no angels, no priests, nothing. We come to God through Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. And it's absolutely wonderful what has been accomplished for us. But it's for Jews and Gentiles. There is no difference. Verse 19, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. If you took that verse in isolation, it might say, well, it's the Gentiles are now becoming Jews. They're now being accepted into the Jewish household. But it's a new household. It's a brand new household. Wonderfully in Christ, we who are Gentiles, along with believing members of God's chosen people, the Jews, belong to God's family. In his first letter, um, Peter describes the new people who are made up of Jews and Gentiles and he uses terms that previously would only ever have been applied to the Jews. 
He, he talks about a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And these things, these terms would have only uh, and legitimately only ever been applied to the Jews. But now they're applied to God's new people, both Jews and Gentiles. He says, uh, 1 Peter verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. He also says that there are like members of a building. He talks about a building and we know that in the New Testament there are various metaphors to describe the church, a building, a temple, a family, a bride, uh, all these kind of metaphors. And he's actually talking about a building using that metaphor and he said it's built, they are, you are being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. In the New Testament we see it was the apostles and the prophets who were the pioneers travelling around the known world preaching Christ and planting churches, often spending weeks if not years with those churches, laying good foundations in those churches, teaching them good doctrine, making sure that they had good foundations in those churches. And the foundations begin with a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the foundation, Jesus is the foundation of the church. And so they would have taught about Jesus and the special revelation they had uh, concerning Jesus. He's the chief cornerstone. It's a way of describing the point from which the whole of the foundation proceeds. The foundation is built on, on this cornerstone which defines the foundation. And Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 3.10 By the grace God has given me and this grace is a gift that Paul had to be an apostle. He recognised he had no rights to be an apostle, but God had called him to be and he gifted him. So it's a gift of grace given to him. I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the role of an apostle is to lay a foundation in the church of Jesus Christ. Because the Great Commission has not yet been completed, um, there are people groups uh, yet to hear the gospel, there are people in communities yet to hear the gospel, the gospel has not been taken to every nation. Apostolic mis- uh, ministry is still needed to take the gospel to these unreached people groups, to plant churches and to lay good foundations in those churches based on the apostolic doctrine that we find in the New Testament. They are not extra, as it were, to the New Testament or different from, but they take that doctrine and they they lay that into churches. We're part of an apostolic movement called New Frontiers, a family of churches together uh, on a mission where apostles and prophets work together, breaking into new areas in this nation and around the world, planting churches on New Testament principles. And some of the money that we give goes to this ministry. We are involved in apostolic ministry as a church as we're part of this family. And it's good to read about new ground being broken, as it were, new, new nations um, where churches are being planted. And we can really rejoice in being part of that. 
Now, as far as apostolic ministry is concerned, we'll hear more about that when we come to chapter 4, because Paul talks about the ministries of apostle, prophet, evangelist, and pastor, teacher. So um, we'll go into that more there. God's plan then, his big picture, started with Abraham and the Jewish nation with promises that were to be fulfilled in Christ. There, are ne- there is now only one people of God. There was a teaching in the church some years ago, I haven't heard it recently, I must say, um, that God had two plans. He had a plan for the Jews and he had a plan for the church. And these were quite separate and God was working out these plans through history. But I think you can see from this scripture that God only has one plan. He has one new people made up of Jews and Gentiles. And this is to be his dwelling place. God wants a place to dwell and it's made up of new people. So chapter 2 and verse 21. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Built together, Jews and Gentiles. And the you too really is anyone who believes in Jesus can be placed into this building, can be part of this building, this temple uh, in which God lives by his spirit. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, the living stone, we've already referred to Jesus as the chief cornerstone, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are living stones. I don't know about you, but I I sometimes look at old ancient buildings uh, and I look how well the stones fit together. Now, they had no modern machinery. It was all done painstakingly, done by hand. And I'm thinking, how on earth did they get these joints so, so square and so true? Absolutely amazing. And they fit together. And that's what holds the building. Now, when we come together, we've got a few rough edges. We, you know, we're a bit rough hewn, you know, when we come together as a church. And God needs to smooth us down and knock off some of the rough edges. That's what it means to be built together. And it's a process, all right? But, but it's a process that God is involved in, you know, making us fit together. When we first come, we would have all sorts of differences and ideas and so on. But God begins to fit us together until we actually love one another and appreciate one another and we become a holy temple in the Lord and a place where he loves to dwell. In conclusion then, we've seen, seen that uh, all the things that tend to divide people such as race and culture and social standing, sex and religion, whatever it is, they are, are, lim- are, eliminate, are eliminated <laughs> um, for those who are joined to Jesus. When we're joined to Jesus, there should be none of these divisions. And writing to two churches, Paul drives this point home. To the Galatians, he said, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Then to the Colossians, he said, here there is, and when he says here, that's it, In the church, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, 
but Christ is all and is in all. So we've seen this morning that God performed a double miracle. He reconciled us to himself and then he has given us the power to be reconciled to others who come to Christ. He's made that basis for reconciliation. Now, there's a number of things that we can read about that God has done. But somehow we have to work those out in our life. It's true, but we have to work it out. And um, in chapter 4 of Ephesians, we read this, chapter 4 and verse 3. He says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. We've already heard that there is, there is one God and Father, one Spirit, one Jesus Christ. Right? We have, but we have to work hard at, at maintaining that unity, of keeping the unity of the Spirit, because we become conscious of our differences. We become conscious sometimes of social class and education and background and ethnic origin and all these things. And we have to say, these are secondary. They're secondary to being one in Jesus. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called, to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. I think that should be. Have we got all, an all on the end of there? <laughs> oh yeah, I've only got a... I've finished with in on my paper. <laughs> to our shame, to our shame, the history of the Christian church is littered with divisions. Isn't it? If you know anything about the church. And often over trivial secondary issues. Sometimes it's over important issues of doctrine and maybe that's legitimate. But in many cases it's over custom and practice and trivial things. And I'm delighted that in our day more and more Christians are discovering the unity that there is in the spirit and they are actually welcoming the diversity that we find in the church. The diversity brings richness And so we can travel around the world and find that the gospel um, has been accepted. People have become Christians in a very different culture from ours. But that's quite legitimate, providing that culture is not anti-Christian. And that brings variety. You know, God has multicoloured wisdom that he's showing throughout the earth. And I just pray that God will help us to maintain the unity that God has accomplished through Jesus. Jews and Gentiles united into one new man. We are part of one new man in Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you have done what man could never do. You have performed miracle after miracle. You've reconciled us to yourself and Lord, you've reconciled us to one another. Lord, by just transforming us from what we were into what you wanted to make us. Lord, will you give us grace? Will you give us strength? Lord, to live out what is true of us in Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen.